Washington, D.C. was laid out to be an imposing capital city, a city with grand avenues and majestic buildings. Since its early days, it has certainly grown into one of the great capital cities of the world. In more modern times, it has come to be called by many the capital of the free world, the decisions made in those stately buildings reverberating out to every corner of the globe. To others, it is the epicenter of greed and a figurative swamp desperately in need of draining. To me, though, well, I just call it home. I've traveled the country over Stopped in each and every town Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. In just a short time, I'm going to be hitting the road and traveling to the far corners of America to bring you stories from this country's past, present, and future. But today, before I go, I thought I'd bring a few stories from home. My home, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is a unique place to be from. From the very beginning of the city, right through to today, many people find it, for some reason, hard to believe that people are actually from here. Our main industry, the federal government, is, by its very nature, composed of people from elsewhere. Between the government people and their staffs, the foreign ambassadors and their staffs, and the students at our amazing universities, we do have an incredibly diverse and transient population. But some of us are actually from here. Even some people you may know. Duke Ellington, Marvin Gaye, Bill Nye, the science guy, Dave Chappelle, and Samuel L. Jackson are just a few native Washingtonians who come to mind. We are a welcoming bunch in general, perhaps a little better informed about politics than many, and very proud of our little city. And I think we have an unspoken awareness of our own mortality, as we have seen our hometown blown to bits in dozens of movies over the years. There's no way to not be affected by that. But in general, we are happy people who like happy hour. Our sports teams, no matter how bad they may be, Chesapeake Bay Blue Crabs, and a good political debate. Washington, D.C. got its start way back in the 1790s. After the Revolutionary War, the men we now call our founding fathers were faced with a daunting task, establishing a new country and finding common ground and compromise among the former colonies, which were all remarkably different. Just one in a long list of issues facing the new nation was where to locate the nation's capital. Philadelphia seemed the obvious choice to many. Before the Revolution, it had been the largest city in the British Empire after London, and was by far the largest city in the new United States. It was central had a major port, and all the amenities of a modern city at that time. The problem was that even in those earliest days, there were serious divides between northern and southern states, and Philadelphia was definitely a northern city. 
Now, Virginia had some pretty major players in those days, in Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and of course George Washington, and they wanted the capital much further south. At the time, Alexander Hamilton was busy trying to set up the first bank of the United States, with the main goals of establishing a common currency and paying off the war debt from the Revolution. Jefferson thought that assuming these debts from the states gave too much power to the federal government. Plus, southern states had already paid the majority of what they owed, so this move would put them on the hook for a portion of the northern states' unpaid debt. Despite these differences, and perhaps some personal shortcomings, these were gentlemen. Perhaps a compromise could be made. Back then, that was still possible. So Hamilton invited Jefferson and Madison over for dinner, and undoubtedly a few drinks, and a deal was struck. Virginia would support the assumption of war debt by a central bank if Hamilton would allow for a new capital city located further south. They left the exact placement up to George Washington, but wanted it located somewhere on the Potomac River. There was already a port town along the Potomac called Georgetown, which, due to the Great Falls just to their north, was the furthest navigable point on the river. This, along with the Port of Alexandria, were incorporated into this new capital city. A square of land 10 miles by 10 miles was surveyed and given to the federal government by the state of Maryland and the Commonwealth of Virginia. While strategically it made sense, it was not surprising that George Washington would choose this location, seeing as it was only a few short miles from his home at Mount Vernon. Ironically, because of the ten years it took to build the foundations of the city before the government moved in, George Washington was the only president who never lived in the White House or presided over the government in the city that would forever bear his name, Washington. The city's flag is actually taken from his family's coat of arms. Between then and now, the city has grown and shrunk and grown again. And tons of interesting things have happened here. Today, though, we only have time for a few. Some places have a physical location that you can visit and see where it all began. For us in Washington, D.C., that location is Jones Point. It was at Jones Point, at the confluence of the Potomac River and Hunting Creek, that surveyor Andrew Ellicott and astronomer Benjamin Banneker marked the southern boundary of the new capital city back in 1791. A small stone obelisk was placed there, and then at one-mile intervals along the surveyed boundary of the district. These obelisks came to be called the Boundary Stones, and 36 of the original 40 still exist in some form or other. Since that time, though, neighborhoods have grown up around the stones, placing some in interesting locations. We found them at intersections, in parks, in people's private yards, in school and church parking lots, and even found one hidden inside Fort Lincoln Park Cemetery. Looking for the stones is like a scavenger hunt. And once you've seen one, 
you may see them in places you've overlooked them for years. We found one right up the street from my mother's house, right on the side of the road. Whether you're just visiting Washington or a lifelong resident, finding the Boundary Stones is a fun and interesting look into the literal foundation of our city. Check out the resource we used to help us find them at www.boundarystones.org. Happy stone hunting. Post-Civil War Washington was a far cry from today's version, where gaggles of bored 7th graders are marched around between museums and monuments in matching t-shirts. You wouldn't have wanted your kids anywhere near D.C. back then in the daytime, and at night, it just got worse. The neighborhoods of Washington had names like Bloodfield, Hell's Bottom, The Slashes, and Murder Bay and one was worse than the next. Murder Bay was in the heart of downtown, in the area we now call Federal Triangle, literally blocks from the White House. Within Murder Bay, there were over a hundred brothels and plenty of bars and gambling dens as well. It was a truly reprehensible place, deserving of its name and reputation. Now, right across Pennsylvania Avenue from Murder Bay, was a string of bars called Rum Row, the most notorious of which stood at 1331 E Street, Schumacher's. Schumacher's was a bar with character, and having never been there myself, let me relay to you how others have described it. Albert Hubbard said, and I quote, Schumacher's is a grocery, a wet grocery, where no groceries have been sold since Lee surrendered to Grant. There are boxes piled to the ceiling in this grocery, and you make your way through a narrow passage, past barrels and kegs, and find yourself in the back room, vulgarly called the bar room. Raymond Clapper said, There was no more disreputable-looking bar in town. The place was never dusted. Cats crawled over the rubbish. A stale smell of beer greeted customers at the door. End quote. In other words, it sounds like a great place. And despite its eccentricities, Schumacher's had a way of attracting a powerful clientele. Many a senator and congressman, and even presidents, were known to frequent this dingy watering hole. Let's hear on this also from Albert Hubbard. The men who came here mostly live in palaces. They are rich and powerful. They bear big burdens. But here, men get freedom from the tyranny of things. Nothing matters. The bartenders are your neighbors. The proprietor, your longtime friend. The patrons, your partners. End quote. One such patron was Democratic lobbyist and future owner of Schumacher's, Colonel Joseph Rickey. Rickey was a Civil War veteran, but most certainly not a colonel in the military. This seemed to be an honorary title he bestowed on himself. 
When Schumacher's fell on hard times in 1883, Colonel Ricky bought the place and brought on bartender George A. Williamson as a partner. One morning, the colonel came in for his morning cocktail, and Williamson gave him what he called a healthy drink, rye whiskey with seltzer and a lemon. Sounds healthy to me. Things were a little bit different back then. Now, limes were all the rage back then and often substituted for lemons. But this simple drink became very popular, especially in the heat of summer. At some point, gin became the favored spirit, and the gin Ricky was born, which is somewhat ironic because Ricky himself once said, and I quote, gin is a liquor no gentleman would drink, end quote. The Gin Ricky has been named the official cocktail of Washington, D.C., and I wish I could send you to Schumacher's to try one. But alas, Prohibition put an end to Schumacher's, as it did to so many great taverns around the country, and it has since been bulldozed. A Marriott sits there today. There's a plaque in the Marriott lobby retelling the story I've just shared with you, and you can get a Gin Ricky today at the hotel bar but I recommend you have one at Martin's Tavern in Georgetown, the first bar to open in D.C. after Prohibition was lifted. It's a great bar, and a place where senators and congressmen can be found, drowning their sins in gin. Hush, my baby, I'll tell you a story How true love does exist Next up we will travel all the way back to 1910 for a story involving the president, a future Hall of Fame pitcher, two great baseball traditions, and opening day in our nation's capital. It was April 14, 1910, and it was a beautiful spring day at Boundary Field in Washington, D.C. The Washington Nationals and Philadelphia Athletics were getting ready to take the field and get the 1910 baseball season underway. The old wooden stadium, sometimes referred to as American League Park 2 or Nationals Park, was bursting at the seams as 14,000 people, a record crowd, had come to cheer on their hometown Nats. There were many important people there that day, but this story will focus on two. The President of the United States... William Howard Taft, and the greatest player in Washington, D.C. baseball history, future Hall of Famer, Walter, the Big Train, Johnson. William Howard Taft will not go down in history as America's greatest president, but because of what happened that fateful April day, he may have been the most influential president in baseball history. I liked Taft. He was a big man, like me. Standing six foot two and weighing in at 300 pounds, he was also the last American president to sport facial hair, something I also approve of. He was the 27th president of the United States and would go on, after his presidency, to become the 10th Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court the only person in history to hold both offices. 
He would later be laid to rest as the first president buried at Arlington National Cemetery, right across the river from D.C., and remains the only president, other than John F. Kennedy, buried there. Taft was also a big baseball fan, and upon arrival at Boundary Field, he chose not a fancy box, but a seat right next to the field. His seating choice would have a huge effect on the day's event. While the president was making his way to his seat, warming up on the field was the national starting pitcher, 22-year-old Walter, the big train, Johnson. 1910 was his third season with the Nats, but it was the season he really came into his own. In his 21 seasons as a national, he would record 110 shutouts, a record which still stands today and is unlikely to ever be broken. He recorded 417 career wins, second only to the great Cy Young, and racked up an incredible 3,508 strikeouts, a record which stood for 56 years. In 1936, when Major League Baseball opened its Hall of Fame, there were five inaugural members, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Onus Wagner, Christy Matthews, and Walter Johnson. His statue stands at the new National Stadium, and even a high school just outside D.C. and Bethesda is named in his honor. But back on that fateful day in 1910, he was a shy 22-year-old kid from Humboldt, Kansas, with a wicked sidearm delivery and a very bright future ahead of him. As the teams finished their warm-ups and took to the field, and the standing-room-only crowd watched on, Nationals coach Jimmy McAleer took a brand-new, shiny white baseball and approached the front row, where President Taft was sitting. Taking advantage of the president's choice of seat, McAleer asked if the president would throw out the first pitch. Taft, with a smile on his face and undoubtedly a wave of nostalgia, took the ball. He handed it to his wife while he removed his gloves and then made a solid long throw to the mound where Walter Johnson made the catch and a legend of history connected with a legend of sport. In doing so, President Taft became the first sitting president to throw out the first pitch, starting a Washington tradition which has included almost every president since, at least during the years we had a team in Washington. The game itself was a good one, at least if you are a Washington fan, which I am. Johnson was having a great game, and the Nationals' defense had come up with some key plays. Johnson himself hit a ground rule double in the fifth, driving the ball all the way to the center field fence. Germany Schaefer, who was not German, would double to right, allowing Johnson to score. The Nationals were leading 3-0, going into the top of the seventh. With two outs, Philadelphia third baseman Frank Baker popped up in a right field, where Doc Gessler, one of three guys named Doc on the Nats, none actually doctors, was waiting. This would have been an easy catch for Doc, had he not collided with a spectator wandering around on the field, both of them, and the ball, hitting the ground. 
That collision cost Johnson his no-hitter, but such was baseball in 1910. And he retired the next batter and got out of the inning with his shutout intact. What happened next is a matter of some conjecture. It seems as though President Taft may have grown a bit cramped in his small wooden chair on the sideline, so he stood and stretched in the middle of the seventh inning. Due to his choice of seat, the whole stadium could see him, and out of respect, also stood and stretched. Although the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, was still 24 years in the future, this is often cited as the origin of the great baseball tradition, the seventh inning stretch. Now somewhere out there, a baseball historian is screaming at me, what about Henry Wright, they are saying. So let me tell you that story as well, but with a twist. You see, way back in 1869, the Cincinnati Red Stockings became the first all-professional baseball team, meaning all of their players were paid. One of those players, and also the team manager, was Harry Wright. Wright's work in those early days would also earn him a trip to the Hall of Fame, many years after his death. Now, he wrote in a letter to a friend that year, quote, The spectators all arise between halves of the seventh inning, extend their legs and arms, and sometimes walk about. In so doing, they enjoy the relief afforded by relaxation from a long posture upon hard benches, end quote. Was this referring to a seventh inning stretch 41 years before that fateful game in 1910? Maybe. If this was indeed the custom in Cincinnati at the time, surely it would be one the fans remembered. And perhaps one fan in particular would bring it to the world. Now this fan that, that I'm thinking of would have been 12 years old at the time. And a big baseball fan. You may have guessed that the fan I am referring to was 12-year-old Cincinnati native and future president of the United States, William Howard Taft. I doubt I am the first to draw that conclusion, but I have looked and looked and find no other reference to the connection whatsoever. Fast forward back to 1910, where a much older Taft returns to his seat, and the bottom of the seventh inning commences. The game ended in that same 3-0 Nationals win, a one-hitter and a shutout for the great Walter Johnson. The next day, Johnson sent that first pitch ball to the White House and asked for President Taft's signature. The president obliged and wrote, quote, For Walter Johnson, with the hope that he may continue to be as formidable as in yesterday's game, end quote. As we already know, Walter Johnson did go on to quite a storied career. And that's the story of opening day, 1914, in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The story of a president, a pitcher, and two great baseball traditions. Feelings crashing like a runaway
Charles Lazarus was a native Washingtonian who grew up in an apartment above his father's business at 2461 18th Street in the neighborhood we now call Adams Morgan. His father owned and ran a bicycle repair shop, and Charles could often be found helping his dad out after school and on weekends. As he grew up, he learned the business and began fixing bikes on his own and assisting customers at the counter. He dreamed of owning his own business someday. But Charles turned 18 in 1941, and like most men his age, he put his home life on hold and went off to fight in World War II. During his time in the war, Charles came to understand that many of his soldier friends, upon returning home, would want to settle down and start families. When he himself returned home, Charles had a plan of his own. He rented the old bicycle shop from his father and, thinking of all these post-war babies, opened Children's Bargain Town in 1948. Children's Bargain Town was a great place to buy baby furniture. Cribs and strollers and high chairs and carriages, perhaps. His customers often asked him why he didn't sell toys as well, and when enough of them asked this question, Charles started to listen. And he began to carry toys right alongside the furniture. And I'm sure he had all the good ones from that time. Mr. Potato Head, Fisher Price's Little People, Play-Doh, Candyland, anything a kid could want. And what Charles Lazarus discovered was that a family would likely only buy one crib, but toys would bring them back over and over again. His business grew, and Children's Bargain Town became Children's Supermart. And that business grew. And soon, his father's old bicycle shop just wasn't big enough. So Charles had an idea. An idea for a supermarket that sold only toys. Taking from the emerging self-service grocery stores of the time, he imagined a huge store full of toys where customers could wheel carts around and get any toy they had ever imagined. When Charles Lazarus opened his second store, it was just that. But he needed a catchier name than Children's Supermart. And he came up with one, and it was catchier. Because while many of us have never heard of Charles Lazarus or Children's Supermart, we have all heard of the name he chose. For when that kid from D.C., who grew up working in his father's bicycle shop, opened his second store, it would start a toy dynasty. And, as I'm sure you've already guessed by now, it would be called Toys R Us. And that's it for this episode of American Anthology. Thanks for visiting my hometown of Washington, D.C. with me. Now my bags are packed, and I am just hours away from getting on the road. When you hear from me next time, I'll be coming to you from somewhere in wild and wonderful West Virginia and bring you tales from the Mountain State. To get in touch with me or find out more about my trip, check out my website at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, 
gobeforeisleep.com. You can find me on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet and on Instagram at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. Music this week comes from DC-based band Seven Locks. Sound effects from the great people over at freesfx.com and our theme music from the legendary Memphis Slim. Thanks again for tuning in, folks. This is your host, Mike Harding, and I'll see you out there. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.